0: Hello. Welcome to the Oxford Anthropology Podcast. You're listening. You're listening to the Oxford Anthropology Anthropology Podcast. Podcast. To the Oxford Anthropology Podcast. Welcome to our podcast series within the School of Anthropology and Museum Ethnography at the University of Oxford. My name is Olivia Freidinger and I'm a master's student studying social anthropology. In this episode, Professor of Religion and African Studies Adrian van Klinken from the University of Leeds guides us through his lecture titled Pentecostalism, Deliverance, and Queer Sexuality in Nigeria Literary Representations. He takes us to Nigeria, a conservative Pentecostal capital of the world. Focusing on a new generation of Nigerian writers producing queer LGBTQ plus texts, von Klinken looks at the motif of the deliverance ritual, which both demonizes and pejoratively spiritualizes queer life in the culture. Van Klinken engages with the power of Nigerian literature to illustrate how the texts simultaneously critique conservative Pentecostalism and, at the same time, offer new imaginaries on what he calls radical queer possibility for a Nigerian religious social reality that is more inclusive and life-affirming for lgbtq individuals. In all, this lecture integrates anthropological, gender and sexuality, literary and religious studies in a truly unique and powerful way. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy.
1: Deliverance prominently features as a central theme in the emerging body of queer Nigerian literature. For instance, the novel Walking with Shadows, which has been welcomed as the first Nigerian gay novel, includes a dramatic scene where the protagonist undergoes a physically violent deliverance ritual by a Pentecostal pastor. He is beaten with a whip on his bare back until he loses consciousness, while the pastor shouts at him, Banish the devil from your heart and accept God in your life. In another acclaimed novel, Speak No Evil, the young gay protagonist who grows up in the Nigerian diaspora in the United States is taken by his father back to Nigeria in order to be delivered by a Pentecostal pastor. And the latter's diagnosis is that this demon of homosexuality has become so entrenched in America, you can't really fight it there. That's why you had to come back. This is a place, Nigeria, where the faith is strong and hasn't been infiltrated by the devil. Other texts centering around what has been described as the emergent queer in Nigerian fiction include similar scenes. And to give you just one more example, this is a beautiful fragment from a very rich and moving poetry collection by a gay, an openly gay Nigerian poet, who actually recently was awarded a National Poetry Prize in Nigeria, which might actually destabilize some of our assumptions, I guess, about the politics of sexuality in that country. But in one of his poems, Romeo Uriogun writes, we do not want the tears, no mother dragging us to church, no altar filled with the smell of burning incense, no prophet glad in a white gown. No Bible raised high like a sword. No whip coming down hard on bare backs. No boy holding his lover's name in a song of pain. No words of deliverance hanging over beautiful heads. Clearly, deliverance is a central theme in contemporary queer Nigerian literature. It is a critical theme because through narratives of deliverance, Nigerian queer literary texts critique the dominant religious culture that is opposed to and indeed demonizes queer subjects. It is also a productive theme, as I will demonstrate in this uh, paper, because through these narratives of deliverance, literary texts stimulate a creative, social and religious imagination. The implicit suggestion of many of these texts is that perhaps it is not the queer body that needs to be delivered from the demon of homosexuality, but it is society that needs to be delivered from religious views and practices that demonize and dehumanize a segment of the population. The type of Christianity that has become enormously popular across sub-Saharan Africa, and in particular in Nigeria, and that can rightly be described with the title of this seminar series, an emerging political and religious form, is known by the shorthand term Pentecostalism. And Nigeria is widely considered to be the epicenter of African and global Pentecostalism, with Lagos in particular being referred to as the Pentecostal capital of the world. In the words of political theorist Ruth Marshall, which she borrows from Foucault, Nigerian Pentecostalism constitutes the expression of a political spirituality. In her analysis, the Pentecostal program of conversion presents a specific regime of practice in and through which particular moral and political projects are produced. In the anthropology of Christianity, the study of African Pentecostal charismatic religious cultures and social formations has been a particular area of interest. Generally associated with the notion of born-again conversion as involving, as Birgit Meyer calls it, a complete break with the past, African Pentecostal churches have developed a particular concern with practices of deliverance, that is, according to Meyer, rituals during which these powers of darkness, the devil and demons, manifest themselves and are exercised. According to Achille Mbembe, the war against demons is one of the ideological symbolic formations for which Pentecostalism exercises profound influence on contemporary African conceptions of the self. As much as these powers of darkness are often linked to spiritual forces associated with indigenous religion, such as ancestors, witchcraft, and other spirits, the afflictions and the problems that these forces are believed to cause can be highly modern, such as visa issues, immigration issues, employment, material well-being, fertility, and indeed homosexuality. As such, the discursive regime of deliverance enables what Joel Robbins, who will be speaking here in a week time, what Joel Robbins describes as the first paradox of global Pentecostalism. It becomes local without ever taking the local into itself. So a paradox of globality, globalisation and locality. As much as deliverance rituals demonstrate the centrality of rupture or discontinuity in Pentecostal life, in African contexts, they also demonstrate a significant level of continuity with the spiritual cosmologies of indigenous religions. This reveals another paradox explored in anthropological studies of Pentecostalism, the paradox of discontinuity and continuity. As Martin Lindhardt puts it, processes of rejection and diabolization are simultaneously processes of preservation, or in other words, Pentecostalism preserves indigenous traditional religious ontologies by demonising them. In recent years, Many African Pentecostal churches have developed a particular concern with issues of sexuality, specifically homosexuality, in their deliverance ministries. This is no surprise, given the fact that many of these issues have become highly politicised across the continent. According to Naomi Richmond, who I believe might be present uh, online, in her study of a typical Nigerian Pentecostal deliverance church and its attitudes towards homosexuality, the Church position on homosexuality derives from its theological vision of human bodily creation and rightful relations between created persons. In short, homosexuality is seen as wrong, as it runs counter to an understanding of God's intentions for human sexuality. Against a backdrop of spiritual warfare theology, which sees God as engaged in a cosmic conflict with Satan, homosexuality emerges as de facto demonic in origin. Homosexual desires in this system become the product of demonic interference, confusions, or illusions elicited by Satan to subvert the divinely created order. Interestingly, in as much as churches like this, and the church in Richmond study is the Mountain of Fire and Miracle Ministries, which is led by the pastor who also offered this book, Healing and Deliverance Prayers for Gays and Lesbians at the Midnight Gate, a very telling title. As much as churches like this demonstrate a very modern concern with homosexuality, responding to what they perceive as a Western secular agenda of imposing gay rights on Africa, they understand same-sex desire from an indigenous cosmology, according to which the body and sexuality are directly afflicted by spiritual realities. Spirits in this religious culture are often sexualized, and vice versa, sex and sexuality are spiritualized forms of sexuality considered as immoral, such as homosexuality, are not just seen as sinful, as in other Christian denominations, but are linked to evil spirits and are associated with a satanic plan to bring about the end of the world. This is reflected in an increasingly popular discourse in Nigeria and in other parts of Africa about the spirit of homosexuality or the demon of gayism and lesbianism and in subsequent deliverance practices that aim to drive out such spirits from the bodies believed to be possessed by them. In the novel that I just mentioned, Walking with Shadows, Pastor Matthew advises the gay protagonist, Adrian. Must be a coincidence. Um, Sometimes we let the devil come into our lives and rule our hearts. It is the devil that tempts you, my brother. Thus, the intense politicization of homosexuality in Nigeria and other parts of Africa is partly driven by a spiritual panic, which has generated a Pentecostal culture, if not an industry, concerned with deliverance of the queer body from the demon of homosexuality. And of course, this effort doubles as a deliverance of society from the evil of queerness. As a brief intermezzo, some um, methodological considerations obviously literary texts should not be simply considered as factual mirrors of reality of social reality as ellen wiles in a recent review essay of literary anthropology points out even the most realist, socially realist novels are still fiction and thus by definition not confined to factual accuracy the value of literary writing is precisely that it is not so much concerned with offering an accurate description of reality, but with a representation of social reality that is creative, critical and imaginative. As Marilyn Cohen puts it in the introduction to her volume, Novel Approaches to Anthropology, the aesthetic experience of reading literary works of art activates the imagination to visualise other worlds, existing in the past, present or future and it stimulates a critical sociological imagination by allowing readers to take a fresh look at social norms. To use a term from literary studies, Otto Quason's concept of calibration is useful here. According to Quason, post-colonial literature offers a calibration of social reality, and hence he advocates a method of reading literary texts for the social, reading for the social, which embraces the ideological notion of using the literary as a means towards social enlightenment. This notion is particularly helpful for my reading of queer Nigerian literature. These texts all have a more or less explicit agenda of calibrating the conditions of queer life in a context of severe socio-political and religious homophobia and transphobia, and of contributing to social enlightenment in the midst of misrepresentation, stereotypes, prejudice, and legislation against lgbtq people over the past two decades or so much energy has been invested by anthropologists in the study of by anthropologists and by scholars of religion more generally in the study of pentecostalism i think almost on a weekly basis there is another monograph about uh, pentecostalism somewhere in africa yet little attention has been paid to the ways in which pentecostalism itself is increasingly subject of cultural religious and political critique So, in this paper, I would like to foreground African, and specifically Nigerian, literature as an important site of an emerging critique of Pentecostalism as a hegemonic political culture, specifically in relation to its practice of deliverance as a heteronormative discipline of queer bodies. By exercising such critique, literary texts also open up alternative social and religious imaginations. The anthropologist George Paul Mayu, in a recent paper on a Kenyan queer artwork, writes that art can also inspire anthropologists to reflect on the importance of attending to queer future-making, past and present, and of activating, through ethnography, their critical and transformative possibilities. In a similar mode, I suggest that engaging with Nigerian literature offers rich insight into queer world-making and future-making which merits anthropological and ethnographic consideration. Over the past 15 years or so, there has been a rapid growth of queer themed African literary texts. And a new generation of Nigerian writers in particular is at the heart of this development, tackling the previously taboo issue of queer sexuality. This may reflect Nigeria's general status as a literary powerhouse on the continent. Yet it is remarkable nevertheless, given the country's very strict anti-LGBTQ legislation and its conservative socio-political climate. As Chris Dunton has pointed out, in African queer literature, religion is engaged as central to ideological formations in Africa. There is a tendency in queer studies at large to mostly associate religion with conservativeness and anti-queerness. However, thinking queerness from Africa foregrounds religion broadly defined as a productive site and category. Indeed, in African queer social formations and cultural production, religion appears to be multifaceted. As much as it is subject of critique, it is also creatively and constructively engaged to explore its potential for queer world-making. Even Pentecostal Christianity, often seen as a particularly strong factor in the anti-LGBTQ politics in Africa, According to Kwama Otoo, in his recent ethnographic monograph on uh, queer subjectivity in Ghana, Pentecostalism can be recycled as a site of radical queer possibilities and freedom. Yet little attention has been paid so far to the ways in which literary texts engage this site of radical queer possibility. So in the following part of this paper, I will discuss three recent Nigerian queer-themed texts, which I selected on the basis of a couple of criteria, being they feature the theme at the heart of our uh, discussion today, queer sexuality, deliverance, and Pentecostal Christianity. Second, they provide literary insight into different forms of queerness, male same-sex relationships, female same-sex relationships, and intersex um, condition. And third, they present different narrative strategies that offer alternative modalities of Nigerian queer religious world-making. In their engagement with Pentecostalism, specifically the practice of deliverance, these novels respectively seek to expose religious hypocrisy, reclaim indigenous religion, and reinterpret Christianity. This novel I chose as a cover uh, cover image just because of the title, but actually the novel hasn't been published yet. It's forthcoming uh, early next year. But the title, Blessing, is, is again a kind of a religious uh, connotation, obviously. So the first novel I'd like to discuss is On Ayaji Crowder Street, which is a graphic novel, illustrated by Alaba Onajin and written by Elmerton John. And as a graphic novel, it makes a unique contribution to queer Nigerian literature. The novel centres around a family of Reverend Akpobori, who is the lead pastor of a Pentecostal church called The reformed end time ministries the setting is lagos which i earlier alluded to as the pentecostal capital of the world the novel presents a literary version of what anthropologist david cassiano has described as the popular tales of pastors luxury frauds and corruption that surround nigerian pentecostalism the pastor in this novel is a crook who runs his church as a money-making enterprise with scam miracles, and he also is a moral hypocrite who preaches family values while forcing himself onto the housemaid and firing her afterwards. One of the narrative threats in this novel is a miracle service that Reverend Akbar Bori is organizing in his church. Interestingly, at the beginning of the novel, the reverend acknowledges his own inability to heal people and to perform miracles and therefore, in order to have this miracle service, he plans to hire a gang of scoundrels to perform fake miracles. He sends his junior pastor to negotiate with the criminals, and he is told by the gang leader that good miracles cost money. The agreed price doubles after Reverend Arpobori comes up with the idea that the deliverance service should specifically focus on homosexuality. This idea is inspired by the passing of an anti-gay law. And the story here alludes to the passing of the same-sex marriage prohibition bill in Nigeria in 2013, with Akpobori capitalizing on the moral panic around homosexuality to market his church. The billboard advertising the miracle service refers to Reverend Akpobori as the anointed man of God and as the godly destroyer a destroyer of demons. These words contrast to the earlier acknowledgments by the pastor himself that actually he can't really heal people. During the service, Reverend Akpobori casts out demonic spirits, causing barrenness, illness, and other inflictions, constantly evoking the mighty name of Jesus. It culminates in the pastor introducing a young man who has been arranged by the criminals, claimed to be possessed by the spirit of homosexuality. The graphics depict the drama that the deliverance is in a Pentecostal context, with the pastor laying his hands on the young man and pushing him hard till he falls on the floor while shouting at him, in the mighty name of Jesus, be loosed, be loosed, be loosed, loosed, I say. And you can imagine the volume with which the pastor in kind of um, in the fictional setting described here would be shouting these words. The invocation of the mighty name of Jesus illustrates how, for Pentecostals, Jesus Christ is a source of ultimate spiritual power that can be mobilized to combat any perceived evil. The repetition of the phrase be loosed is part of the speech act of deliverance. The young man's rolling over the floor is the sign that the evil has left him. When the pastor asks him afterwards whether he still likes man, the young man responds, man? No, God forbid. Why would I like man? So he can't even remember his earlier desires. The dramatic deliverance ritual from the spirit of homosexuality has been successfully faked, and the congregation shouts in excitement, praise the Lord. In the meantime, there is a separate storyline in the novel in which Akpobori's son, with the telling name Godstime, has become increasingly intimate with his friend Onyeka. When his father finds out, he sees it as a threat to his own reputation and ministry, telling his son, I will not allow the devil to use you to ruin me. He then subjects the two boys to a private deliverance ritual, spraying them with anointing oil while praying loudly, in the mighty name of Jesus, I command every demon of Sodom to get out of these children. Onyeka plays along during the deliverance, responding to the ritual by shaking and speaking in tongues. Apparently, he has internalized the demonization of his sexuality. In a tragic turn of events, soon after, Onyeka commits suicide with Gottstein blaming his father for the tragedy, saying, it is all your fault, Jesus didn't drive people away, the subtitle being, you do. Afterwards, Gottstein is sent to Germany for studies, but ends up in a severe depression. However, the pastor who serves as his host in Germany presents a non-judgmental version of Christian faith and helps Gottstein to come to terms with his sexuality. According to the social theorist Nimi Wariboko, anointing, holiness, and prosperity are the trinity of the Pentecostal experience and are keys to understanding the Nigerian Pentecostal movement. Yet John and Onajin's satirical novel suggests that this trinity is at serious risk of becoming a false pretension. Reverend Akpobori might claim to be anointed by God but this is a religious marketing language with no substance to it. In the novel, it turns out to be a fake anointing. Likewise, his concern with holiness turns out to be a concern about his own reputation as a man of God, which he has carefully cultivated to hide his immoral character as a crook pastor, an unfaithful husband and as a sexual harasser. He has built his wealth and prosperity on his reputation but at the end of the novel, he has lost it all. On Ayaji, Crowther Street offers a sharp critique of Pentecostalism as a hypocritical religious culture and of deliverance practices as a scam to exploit people's anxieties, to enrich self-proclaimed man of God. The main objective of the novel is to subject Pentecostalism and specifically its preoccupation with homosexuality to a satirical critique and to expose its moral and spiritual bankruptcy. Yet, in a subtle way, the novel can also be seen as engaging in constructive religious thought. First, by the name God's Time for the central gay character, which can be read as a suggestion that the time has come, God's time has come, to accept all human persons, regardless of their sexuality, as created in the image of God. Second, the way in which the character of Reverend Agbo is contrasted to that of Jesus is illuminating as it invokes a model of religious ministry that is inclusive rather than judgmental. So as much as the novel offers a critique of Pentecostalism, it imagines queer subjectivity as possible within a Nigerian Christian frame. The second novel is a beautiful novel with the title An Ordinary Wonder written by Buki Papilon, which is unique in Nigerian and African queer literature for centering around an intersex protagonist. The novel presents the coming of age story of Ota Loren, shortly Oto, who grows up with his twin sister, Wura. Upon birth, Oto's genitalia were found to be ambiguous. He is gendered as a boy, but when growing up, he becomes more attuned towards being a girl. Seeing the ambiguous genit- genitals of the newly born baby, the midwife, who also is a prophetess in a Pentecostal church, screams and tells Oto's mother that your true son from heaven was stolen from your womb by worshippers of Satan and replaced with an emira demon. An amire is a Yoruba word for a spirit child. The novel captures the stigma associated with Oto's condition immediately on the first page which opens by saying, my name is Otto Lorin, I've been called monster. The stigma of being different results in Otto bullied at school, such as by Bio, who forcibly strips Otto naked and ridicules him. Ha ha ha, oh my god, you're really strange Otto, do you know that? You look like an Iwin, a mummy water. Iwin is the Yoruba word for a spirit of the forest, while Mummy water refers to the well-known water spirit who features in many West African traditions and which is associated with gender diversity and gender ambiguity. Bayo's comments are an illustration of the ways in which spirits in many African cultures are associated with gender ambiguity and fluidity. For Bayo, this clearly is a negative association, yet at least potentially, the spiritualization of the queer body can also be constructive. As the Ugandan queer theorist Stella Nyanzi has argued, cultural and indigenous understandings of gendered spirits of ancestors who may possess individuals offer socially appropriate notions of handling in fluid, transient gender identities. An ordinary wonder is concerned with exploring this queer potential of spirits. Yet it does so against the background of popular beliefs in Christianized Nigeria that indigenous gendered spirits belong to the realm of the devil. Oto's grandmother, Mama Ondo, uses the explanatory framework of witchcraft to explain why Oto is abnormal down there. She successfully encourages Oto's mother to join a Pentecostal church, the Seraphic Temple of Holy Fire to seek spiritual protection against the spell put on her family. The services at the temple feature preaching, prophecies, and deliverances performed by charismatic leaders. These leaders are referred to with the Yoruba word woli, meaning prophet. The senior prophet, Woli Omoloya, makes mother believe that Oto's condition is caused by the devil. Twice in the novel, The prophet subjects Oto to a deliverance ritual, narrated in great detail to convey its traumatizing effects. After the first act of deliverance, Oto enjoys several months of peace at home, until another incident makes mother doubt whether the demon has truly left him. She drags Oto to the temple again for a second deliverance session with the prophet, in private and at night this time. And this attempt is much more forceful than the first one, complete with whipping Otto's back and a baptism, in fact, a drowning in a water stream to wash the filth of darkness from the sinner. Seeing the burning eyes of the prophet cast upon him, Otto realizes that I wasn't meant to survive this, not intact. In both these cases of deliverance narrated in the novel, Otto experiences another spiritual presence, that protects and saves his life. This female mermaid spirit first appears early in the novel, after mother has beaten Oto into hospital for putting on a dress of his sister. The spirit appears to him and says, call me Yeyemi. You are safe here between worlds. At the parting of the veil, you may rest. Yeyemi, meaning my mother, is a symbol of maternal divinity who appears at the most critical moments in the novel when Oto is in trouble. During the first deliverance, Oto has a vision of her, feeling embraced by her presence. During the second deliverance, Oto screams for her, Yayami, save me." And she comes again to his rescue, biting Woli Omolaya, who is then forced to let Oto go, making that he survives his drowning ritual. The figure of Yoyemi is one way in which the novel suggests that indigenous religious belief can be life affirming for queer people. The second way is through a babalawo, a Yoruba diviner in the Ifa divination system. Explaining Otto's condition, the priest shares a piece of Yoruba mythology about how at the time of creation, the gods made a small mistake, a small oversight, resulting in a body that looked neither fully male or female. But that was adopted by the goddess Yamoya as falling under her female Ori, destiny, and receiving her protection and guidance. And this validation is a declaration that Oto's embodiment inhabits sacred meaning. Far from demon-possessed, Oto is indeed an ordinary wonder. So the novel suggests that indigenous religious traditions offer wisdom to understand and affirm gender ambiguity. In contrast to Christianity that thrones upon anything outside of the binary construction of male and female. Pentecostalism in particular delegitimizes the embodied experience of people like Otto by demonizing them. Turning this around in the novel, Otto suggests that instead of him being demon-possessed, it was the people who whipped me till I fainted that were evil. In other words, It are the prophets of the Church that need to be delivered from the evil of rigid cisgender heteronormativity and the subsequent violence against intersex and other queer bodies. As much as this novel critiques Christianity, specifically in its Pentecostal form, and reclaims indigenous religion, it also makes subtle reference to the potential within Christianity to affirm queer bodies. This comes in the form of a Catholic nun, who is a teacher at Oto school. She reaffirms him, like the Baba Law earlier, that there is nothing wrong with him. Sister Angelica uses language that merges Christianity and biomedical science when she tells Otto, you're just a child. God created you in his image. Your condition likely has to do with your hormones. Thirdly, Under the Udala Trees, by Cianello which has been hailed as the first Nigerian lesbian novel. Although the word lesbian actually is never mentioned in this novel which I think is is interesting in itself. The novel was published in response to the passing of the same-sex marriage prohibition act in 2013 in Nigeria. And Okparanta uses a significant historical context, setting her story in the aftermath of the Nigerian civil war. The protagonist, named Afioma, is Ibo, and loses her father in the war, with her mother, Mama, being left traumatized and seeking comfort in her conservative faith. When Mama finds out about Itheoma's relationship with another teenage girl, a Hausa girl, a Muslim girl for that matter, she subjects her daughter to a rigid program of religious discipline. In her words, there's nothing more important now than for us to begin working on cleansing your soul This program of cleansing the soul consists of daily Bible study lessons. Immediately from the first lesson, Mama uses the opportunity to explain that homosexuality, according to the Bible, is an abomination. Discussing the creation story of Genesis 1, she tells her daughter that clearly God created man and woman to live as husband and wife. So it continues to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the laws of Leviticus, and other so-called Klubber verses, which for Mama all center around this issue of abomination. For Mama, Ifioma's sexuality is caused by the devil, and she prays for God's protection for her daughter. Protect this, my child, from the devil that has come to take her innocent soul away. Protect her from the demons that are trying to send her to hell, Mama prays. Yet, when the Bible study lessons don't show any effect, Afioma confesses that she still is in love with the girl. Mama realizes that something stronger than a prayer for protection is needed. The devil needs to be exorcised, to be cast out. In a dramatic scene, Mama performs a deliverance, praying over Arfioma while sprinkling her with anointed water and ordering the demon to come out. As the story goes, her voice was progressively louder, Each time she repeated it, but still controlled. In the name of the almighty God, I order you to leave my child. The repeated language and the volume of her voice are typical of the Pentecostal drama of deliverance, which is a performance of spiritual power. At the end, her mother loses self-control, crying for the devil to leave. And in the silence that follows this drama, Ifioma realizes that the only way to get out of this situation of the pressure of her mother is by giving in, or pretending to give in, to her mother's prayers. Ifioma is neither delivered nor cured. Instead, she gradually comes to the understanding that her sexuality is not demonic, but a natural part of herself. Being reminded of what her father once told her about traditional folk tales Being allegorical and symbolical commentaries on real-life situations, Ayoma wonders why the same might not be the case for biblical stories. When she makes the suggestion to her mother, Mama dismisses the suggestion, saying, the Bible is the Bible and should not be questioned, reinforcing a literalist interpretation of the Bible. But Ayoma has an independent mind and is not satisfied. She keeps questioning in the story her mother's take on the Bible and comes up with alternative interpretations. For instance, in a discussion about the story of Adam and Eve, Ayoma muses, just because the story happens to focus on a certain Adam and a certain Eve, that does not mean that all other possibilities were forbidden. What if Adam and Eve were merely symbols of companionship? Instead of being delivered from an evil spirit, Ayoma is being delivered, is being liberated by giving in to a newly found love. While dancing together with her girlfriend Nidi, she felt a sense of liberation that I had not known until then. Yet, this queer liberation is a process with setbacks. Still living with and influenced by her mother, Ayoma keeps having doubts and even wonders whether she might be a witch under the influence of the devil. And after a violent attack of the community of queer women that she has become part of, she gives in to her mother's pressure to marry a childhood friend and lead a normal life without fear of being found out. The marriage fails, and at the end of the novel, Ayoma returns to Ndidi, her girlfriend. And by then, even her mother finally, albeit reluctantly, accepts her daughter when she mutters God, who created you, must have known what he did. Ayoma, in this difficult journey of coming to terms with her sexuality and freeing herself from her mother, does not lose her faith. Yet she does have to reimagine it. Not only does she have to change her view of the Bible, she also grows in her understanding of God, moving away from a rigid image of a stern God, a judgmental God, and instead adopting a notion of God as an artist who is creatively and actively involved in the world, transforming it for the better. As Ayoma uses, if the Old and New Testament are any indication, then change is a major part of God's aesthetic, a major part of God's vision for the world. Maybe God is still speaking and we continue to do so for always. Maybe God is still creating new covenants Only we are too deaf, too headstrong, to set in old ways to hear. These theological reflections are a direct critique of a conservative form of Christianity, which believes that God's laws are unchangeable. Yet they also open up an alternative progressive understanding of Christian faith, in line with a humanistic vision of human diversity and freedom. This way, under the udala trees, creates a space for the Christian legitimacy of female same-sex love in the Nigerian context. And it helps to imagine a Christian social practice that is radically different from popular Pentecostal culture. So this novel can be read as a literary account of queering faith within Christianity through a process of biblical and theological reinterpretation that is woven through the narrative. In the novels we have just discussed, deliverance clearly is a central topic prominently featured in each of these texts. Yet in each of these texts, the Pentecostal performance of deliverance doesn't have the intended effect. None of the queer bodies featured in those stories are delivered from the demon of their non-confirming sexuality. Thus at one level, we can read these texts as narratives of ritual failures. Does the Holy Spirit refuse to fall? Or is it the charismatic pastor or the mother who was unable to make their anointing happen? Or is it the queer body, whether or not with the help of other spiritual realities, that successfully resists Pentecostal deliverance? Whatever the cause, in each of these texts, the performance of Pentecostal deliverance does not lead to the effect intended by the person exercising it. However, at another level, we can read these texts, at least in my interpretation, as engendering a deliverance themselves, not a deliverance of the demon of homosexuality, but a queer deliverance. Tweaking Quason's notion of reading for the social, I suggest a reading of these texts as a reading for deliverance which draws attention to the imaginative, world-making potential of these novels. Deliverance, in the words of philosopher Biko Mandela Gray, invokes freedom, capacity, renewal and possibility. The texts under discussion enact a queer deliverance in at least two ways. They critique the oppression and harm that Pentecostal deliverance practices do to queer bodies. And second, they open up alternative imaginations of how queer life is or can become livable within and beyond the constraints of a homophobic and heteronormative world. As much as these texts critique the Pentecostal demonization of the queer body, they don't necessarily do so. They don't necessarily have an issue with the spiritualization of sexual embodiment. Nigerian queer world-making as reflected in these texts does not break away from but occurs within the realm of the religious although it involves profound religious negotiations and transformations earlier in this paper i mentioned the richmond study of a prominent nigerian pentecostal church and its gay deliverance ministries i quoted her saying that homosexual desires in this system become the product of demonic interference confusions or illusions elicited by Satan to subvert the divinely created order. The novels we have discussed today speak back to the accusation of queer sexuality as demonic. Yet they don't resist or reject a notion of sexuality as embedded in a spiritual battle. The name God's Time in the first novel subtly suggests that queer liberation is a divine project that will happen at God's time. Under the Udala trees is much more explicit in making a similar suggestion that sexual diversity is part of God's creative design of the world and that queer liberation is part of God's ongoing revelation. An ordinary wonder, finally, is also very explicit in its narrative of queer embodiment as being divinely protected and sanctified. So, as much as Pentecostalism preserves traditional ontologies By demonizing them. These novels, particularly in Ordinary Wonder, but in different ways also the other two texts, preserve these ontologies by reclaiming them in a queer-affirming way. I mentioned Ruth Marshall's notion of Pentecostalism as a political spirituality. To use the same terminology, these novels present us with an emerging Nigerian queer political spirituality, drawing on both Christianity and indigenous religions. Resisting a Eurocentric, secular, LGBTQ identities framework, these novels explore the religious and spiritual resources that are relevant and meaningful in the Nigerian context. They claim that queer sexuality is, in fact, not a threat to, but part of a divinely created world. That is why Pentecostal deliverance of the queer body fails in each of these novels. Yet the failure of Pentecostal deliverance engenders a process of queer deliverance, a coming out, if you like, where queer subjects find freedom and embrace the possibility to exist, to flourish, to be affirmed by the spirits, by the gods that gave them life.
0: Thanks for listening to the Oxford Anthropology Podcast. For more episodes, visit podcast.ox.ac.uk slash anthropology or find us on Apple Podcast Audio.